are continuing on with, have y'all been enjoying the series on James so far? Man, I, I, I know I have. I, I love what we see in the book of James because he just lays it out, no bones about it, very plain spoken, and just says, this is the truth, walk ye in it. And here's what happens if you don't, here's what happens if you do, this is how it works. And, uh, and that's the kind of teaching that really ministers to me. So I'm excited to be moving on into chapter four. Now in chapter three, uh, James was uh, finishing out with talking about wisdom. And we talked about that last week, about earthly wisdom, godly wisdom, and how uh, the wisdom that we have has, has a source and produces a specific kind of fruit. And that fruit that godly wisdom produces is very much like the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. Uh, So it's easy to tell what source of wisdom you're operating from when you see the fruit that it produces. If it's producing goodness, patience, meekness, uh, godliness, kindness, uh, then, then you're probably operating out of godly wisdom. If it's producing division, if it's producing anger, if it's producing frustration, confusion, then whatever you were doing probably was coming from earthly wisdom, from the kind of wisdom that is very limited. So now as we get into chapter four, he's kind of doing an extension of that theme. And what I love about chapter four is that more than any other chapter in this book of James, this is dealing with the central issue of surrender surrendering to God, just giving up the need for control. Let's get right to it in James 4, 1 through 5. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And this is where he gets really harsh with us. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And that last verse there, verse five, he jealously, jealously longs for the spirit that he put in us. God breathed into us his Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, that spirit fills us. We become alive, more alive here in this world, but eternally alive in the next one. That's an amazing gift that he gives to us. But when we, we'll get into this in just a moment, a little bit deeper, but James is telling us when we take that gift for granted, when we stop appreciating what he's done and living by it, and instead we choose to appreciate more the immediate things in front of us, the, th- the circumstances, the, the values that our world teaches but God doesn't teach. When we, when we begin to set our allegiances on those things, then, then that is quelling the spirit that he put inside of us that wants us to live as he lives and wants us to live forever, right? So like, like when you make iced tea, 
right? You, you have pure, clear water, and then you dump some brown stuff in, and you mix it around, all of a sudden, you don't have pure, clear water anymore. You got brown. Uh, and, and if we have, actually, you used that in youth ministry years and years ago. I got, Wes Jackson was our youth pastor for a while in, uh, at Austin Cathedral, and he brought tea and made tea, and he said, so, Holy Spirit, like, it's pure water. So, Here's sin. And he dumps tea in it, and it just gets all dark. It's really hard once the dark gets in. Once, that, once the water turns brown, it's really hard to get it pure again on your own. You have to empty it out and be filled again. Right? That was really good. Man, you should, you should speak here more. Um, so anyway, uh, what James is talking about, though, when he's, when he's saying the resulting quelling of the spirit, the resulting uh, suppression of the spirit that he put within us, what causes that to happen is conflict and what conflict does to us, right? So literarily speaking, um, at the core of all conflict is this. A character has something but wants something else, and that creates tension. There's opposition between what a character has and what a character wants. Now, if it's, been, it's back to school Sunday. You may not have talked about this since you were in school. So we're just going to go into this really quickly. There are two main types of conflict in literature and in our lives. The first is internal. Internal conflict is when a character struggles with their own opposing desires or beliefs. It happens inside of them, and it drives their development as a character. Internal conflict. For, it forces us to make choices, and whatever we're conflicted about may, may cause us to make different choices, which forms our character. That's internal. That's all happening inside. There's also external conflict. External conflict is when a character struggles against something or someone that is beyond their control. And you see this like in all, you know, in, in movies. Like anybody seen The Revenant or read the book The Revenant? Okay, The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio, an Oscar for saying the fewest words ever for an Oscar-winning actor. I think he, he said like 50 words in the whole film, but mainly just like froze and, and fought a, a bear. And if I could do that and win an Oscar, I would totally do it, by the way. If I could just freeze and, and fight a bear and win an Oscar, that'd be great. I would do that. Um, but there's, there's a lot of external conflict. He's in the snow. He's fighting a bear. He's got people who are shooting at him and all this. That's external. Those are external forces beyond his control. But the internal conflict that he's dealing with is someone wronged me, and I can't forgive them. I want to go get revenge. And that's actually what drives the whole rest of the film. The reason that he's traipsing through the snow and freezing to death in a lot of the movie is because he can't forgive what happened to him before. Right? So, uh, so every external conflict that we have, I was not planning on talking about The Revenant. So I'm sorry, if you haven't seen it and that lost you, uh, you may not want to watch it. I'm not really sure. Uh, but every external conflict that we have, and that is you versus someone else or you versus something else, every external conflict that you have is actually a result of an internal conflict that you have, which is you versus you. You versus you. Jesus showed us the way on this. He said, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In the natural, he had every right to want to take revenge. He had every right to want to be angry, every right to want to speak up for himself and say, you guys need to stop what you're doing right now 
I need, I, I need to, they need some wrath, God. They, I can't believe what they're doing to me. But instead, that internal conflict, he had to make a choice. And he said, okay, I'm going to choose the path of forgiveness. And that sets the course not only for his life, but for our lives, right? We, and, and, and so when we're talking about conflict, we live in what we call, a, we call it a lot a consumer society. I, I prefer to think, to think of it as an acquisitive society because we always want to acquire more stuff. We don't always necessarily want to consume things, but I know that we all, I think, we all get a little bit jazzed about like the package that's coming in from Amazon that we ordered the other day, right? <gasps> new stuff. We get excited about new stuff. I'm probably infuriating to Jennifer because sometimes I will get excited about stuff. I'll order something, I'll get it, and I'll open it up and think, yeah, actually, this probably, I don't, probably don't need this. <laughs> and then it just sits. But man, the acquisition of the stuff was everything. That was amazing. I don't think I'll use it now, but that was pretty cool to get it. You know? So we live in an acquisitive society. We don't always want more material things. We don't always want more stuff, but we always seem to want more of something. Sometimes the stuff that we want more of is internal. We want a greater sense of security. We want a greater respect. We want a greater understanding of something. Sometimes we want greater acceptance, or we want greater belonging, or a sense of unity. Sometimes we want more connection to our purpose, or our vision to our lives. And, and, and in that sense, these, we have these internal things that we want to acquire more. We want, we want more of this, more of that, more of that. But all of those things that we seem to want more of put us in conflict because they hinge on wanting more control, wanting to be more in charge of things. I think the worst thing for a lot of us is to let go, give control over to someone or something else, and not be able to dictate the outcome. When you let go of control, you let go of the right to determine what happens next, right? And that's hard. That's hard for a lot of us. And that's why everyday life is so often just conflicted for us because there is so much that is out of our control. It's actually almost easier. Uh, I'm going to quote Eric Reed here. He's the pastor and founder of Knowing Jesus Ministries. And he says, most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth, Right? That hits hard. When you think that it's easier to give your afterlife over to God than your present life. And I think that for us, that's because, well, the afterlife, I'm not alive anymore. I don't have any agency. That's after all this is done. But before we get, I can give that to you, God. But before we get to that point, there's things I want to do. I've got control over this now, and I want to exercise that control as long as I can. It's so much easier for us to choose heaven over hell, which we, have no, we know we have no control over, than heaven over earth, which we think we have control over, right? We still want to hold on to the reins in our current life. We still want to hold on to ourselves, hold on to our own will. We want to take up our we don't want to take up our cross and follow him. But he said, in order to follow me, you do have to die. You have to die daily. You have to die to all the stuff that you want to be in control of. And verses four and five, you know, he's addressing the adulterous people that humans tend to be. And it sounds really unduly harsh, but 
what he's meaning there is, is what we were talking about just a moment ago. God has given us over, uh, has given us this gift of eternal life, this gift of victory in Jesus, this gift of, of knowing the one who has overcome the world and being able to overcome it with him. He's given us this gift, but so often we get distracted by the thing that's right now, right here, right in, and the thing that we can control, the thing that we can have, the thing that we can understand easily. And, and, and because of the desire to please him and the desire to get what we want right now, we end up in conflict. The fruit of all that unresolved internal conflict that battle for who's going to get control of this life results in all the external conflict that we have. James is mentioning it here. He's, he says, why is it that you're fighting? Why are you quarreling? Isn't it because of stuff going on inside? I mean, even most fights that you see, sometimes, yes, someone out of nowhere attacks someone else and to protect themselves, someone might have to fight. But most fights happen because people want different things and they're both unwilling to back down and it escalates and escalates and escalates and then they come into a conflict about it. Most fights are because people are internally conflicted and unwilling to give up, unwilling to release control, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to, to avoid the fight, right? And that's what James is talking about. He says, you desire but you don't have. So you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. James is wanting us to get to the point where all we really want is to please the Father. And if that's all we really want, then our internal conflict is solved and our external conflicts don't even enter the picture. If all we want is to please God, we're not alone, though, in, in this problem. Uh, Paul, also famously conflicted. Romans seven twenty one through 23. He said, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Remember, this is the same passage where he's saying, I don't understand. All the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things that I want to do, those are the things I never do. Paul was no different than us. A, a superhero of the faith, but internally conflicted and having to get to that point where he was ready to surrender and relinquish control. Um, and that is the solution. Remember months back, we were going through a series called The Surrender Solution? Remember that? That's what we're talking about here, the surrender solution. We have all this internal conflict. We want something that we feel like the world is telling us we need to have. We want something that we know God is telling us we need to have, and they don't fit. They don't match. How do I figure this out? The solution is that God gets to win. We have to surrender. All the stuff that we want, you know, all the stuff, the earthly desires that we want, we have to give those over. And and let God win and say, God, if you want me to have those things, then you'll have to bring them into my life. But I want what you want. I want your will to be done. And, and James goes on in chapter four to talk about this surrender solution. He says, 
but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We're going to get into that in just a second because that seems opposite of the scripture that we always like to quote where we're changing our mourning into dancing. That sounds like a lot more fun. But James is saying, no, 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 grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Without conflict, there's no story, right? Whether you're reading a book or watching a movie, if nobody has a choice to make, then nothing happens. Imagine a movie where someone's sitting in a room and they're sitting in a chair and nothing happens for an hour and a half. The phone doesn't, even the phone ringing is a conflict. Like, do I get that? And if nothing has been happening for 20 minutes and the phone rings, you're like, oh my gosh, is he going to get it? and do something, right? Imagine that. With no conflict, there's no story. Conflict forces us to make choices and move our story forward. Um, Conflict, though, has to reach a resolution. One side has to win. One side has to win. And in order to end all of our internal conflict and bring resolution, we have to choose. If we choose to maintain control ourselves, Then this passage that we just read, verses 6 through 10, tells us what is going to happen. Verse 6, if I choose to maintain control, then I invite God's opposition. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if I know what God's plan is for me and I say, you know what, that's cool, but I'm going to do it my way. What I'm saying is, God, would you come and oppose me, please, in this? Because I'm not going to listen to you. I want to do my thing. And you can expect that it will be difficult. Because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. If we choose to go our own way again and again and again, another thing that we're saying indirectly is that we're inviting the presence of the enemy into our lives. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When we operate in pride, we're asking for the opposition of God to our proud plan and we're inviting the presence of the enemy. When we surrender and we relinquish our control to God, then we join in with his plans and his purposes. And verse six says that if we'll do that, he'll grant us his grace. His favor. In verse 8, we invite God's closeness. When we surrender and say, God, I want what you want, God comes close to us. He doesn't oppose us anymore. He gets behind us and supports us and moves us forward. And in verse 10, when we surrender our control to God, we allow God to lift us up. Now, verse, I want to read verse 9 again because that was the one that grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. So I'm going to read it out of the message because sometimes that just helps me. James 4, 9 in the message. So let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God and he will be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom. 
Cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way that you will get on your feet. Have you ever been through that? A season where you're doing it your own way and you keep hitting the wall again and again and again and you're wondering, where is God? He's there, but he loves you too much to allow that way to be incredibly successful. He loves you too much to let you go under the false impression that you don't need him and that he doesn't want to be there to lift you up, right? He loves you too much for that. James is asking us some things in this first section. He's asking us to meet God. He's asking us to rid ourselves of polluting attitudes. And he's asking us to allow God to renew our spirits. And his main point here in these first 10 verses is that God will fight for the humble person who has surrendered to him. God will fight for you. He'll fight for me if I say, gotta give up. I want your way. God will be right there and will fight for you. That's resisting the devil. The devil will flee from you. God will be on your side, moving you forward, lifting you up so that you can overcome. He promises that. Now, what I love about this chapter is that the first 10 verses are a call to surrender to God. And then the next verses are in two sections that show us what happens when we refuse to do that, right? So section two is verses 11 and 12. And I kind of call this a warning against playing God. James 4, 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So verse 1 through 10, he's talking about surrender to God. Let him lift you up. Now, if we refuse to do that, one of the things that happens to us is we tend to get a little judgy. We tend to, we tend to step into that role. Well, my way is better. I'm a little bit proud, so I'm, I'm going my own way. I know what's best. Therefore, I can probably call it out when I think other people aren't doing what's best. Right? We tend to get a little judgy. This, this, this kind of thing we associate a lot of times, especially in church, we associate it with like, religiously snooty people, people who have a lot of knowledge of, of the Bible, they can quote chapter and verse, and they usually quote it to you in a way that doesn't make you feel nice, right? So uh, what, what that is, some people just feel like it's their prerogative to expose other people's sins, right? They feel like it's, it's part of their duty to, to judge you. And if we find ourselves feeling that way, like, oh man, I really got to call that out. You know, not in a way like go if if your brother is hurting or your sister is hurting, go and meet with them, walk with them, counsel them, speak to them the truth of God, speaking the truth in love, that's one thing. But just calling someone out, just blasting from afar, just they need to get better and I'm probably the one who needs to tell them. That's not great. That's not relationship. That is judgment, and that is not our job. And when we are not surrendered to God, when we're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit and saying, your will be done, then we're out of the flow of his leading. So we'll see something and we'll call it out, but we're not calling it out with his leading and his spirit. We're calling it out because of what's going on in our mind and our heart. 
and we're bringing division. We sow judgment into somebody's life that way. Um, that kind of approach is more about destruction than it is about salvation. When we are surrendered to the Lord and he says, he points something out to you, and we can walk with somebody through something, that's about salvation. That's about bringing somebody closer to the Father because we love them. But James in 11 and 12 is talking about, well, who are you to judge? Because when we judge people without, you know, when we are correcting without the spirit and the heart and the leading of God, we're judging them. That's not our job. God is the judge. Our job is to walk with people. So one thing, when we're not surrendered, we end up trying to play God. Now in verse, uh, um, in verse 13 through 17, this is the other thing. This is the opposite end of the spectrum. When we refuse to surrender, we can either get really judgy or we can do this. 13 through 17 says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to do this or that. We'll go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know? Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and we'll do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. So 11 and 12 on one end, without surrendering to God, we tend to get judgy. And then what He's writing about here in 13 through 17, the other end of the spectrum, without surrendering to God, we tend to get a little bit prideful. We tend to think, we've got this. I can make my plans. I'm sure God is with me. It's going to be fine. And, we, and so he's talking specifically about business people who are saying, well, okay, in this year, we're going to go do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. But once you are a believer, once you're, you've determined I'm following God, it's him that gets to chart your course. And it's our job to say, God, is this where I should go? Is this what I should do? If, if you're not leading me there, then I don't want to go, right? Proverbs uh, 16, 9 says, we make our own plans, but the Lord decides where we will go. Unsurrendered, we can take on an attitude that's counter to the spirit of Jesus, we get hyper self-confidence, and we end up basically ignoring God. We get a lack of the fear of the Lord, a sense of the awe and wonder of who God is, and how much in charge of everything He is. We try to, without surrendering to Him, we try and plot our own course, and we forget to ask Him if that's really where He wants us to go. Right? So on one hand, we get judgment. On the other hand, we get pride. But straight down the middle, the sweet spot that James is talking about is where we're in surrender. And that's really, as I'm reading through chapter 4, that's really the main point that I think he's trying to leave us here with. We surrender to God because it keeps us from, A, trying to play God, or B, ignoring him. And those are two opposite ends of the spectrum, but those are the two places that without our awareness of his presence in our lives, those are the two places we tend to go. We tend to either try and do his job for him or we tend to ignore him entirely so that we can do the thing we want to do, right? So what do we do with this? Because I feel like I've made this whole room a downer now. Sorry about that. Um, what, but what do we do with this? 
What's the solution? And I believe the solution, like we've been talking about this whole, this whole series, like we talk about almost every Sunday, the solution is, Lord, we surrender. We surrender to you. We started out talking about conflict. James starts this chapter talking about conflict. Why are you quarreling? Isn't it because there's something going on inside that's unresolved? And he's asking us this same question today. God's asking us this same question today. What's troubling you? Why are you quarreling? Why are you bent out of shape? Why are you having these troubles that seem to keep plaguing you right now? If we were real honest, and if we took a look inside, if we allowed the Holy Spirit to, to really dive in, what we find almost every time is that there's something in here, in our hearts, that we haven't let go of, that we haven't given over to him, that we haven't invited him into. Our external conflicts, the things that we think are the problem, are rarely ever the problem. The problem is almost always in our hearts. The problem is almost always those areas that we haven't surrendered to the Lord. 